As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, remember your word to your servants in which you have made us hope. This is our comfort and our affliction that your promise gives us life. Your words have been our songs in the house of our sojourning. And by your spirit and your word, please show us Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. We're just going to read together the last three verses of that text and consider Lord's Day 1 in the light of this text. Let it govern and guide us. So Isaiah chapter 49 Beginning our reading at verse 24 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 26. So Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 24, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, well, at the start of the new year, I thought it would be a good time for us to go back to the catechism and to think once again about the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe some of you have gone through the catechism many times uh, in your life. Maybe it's a new thing. Uh, but we have a tradition in the Reformed churches of preaching through the catechism in, the, in at least one service, ordinarily every Lord's Day. And one of the reasons we do that is so that we can be regularly instructed in God's Word. The catechism is, teaches us what is basic uh, to what we need for doctrine and life, for what we need to know, for what we ought to believe, what we need to know how, for how we ought to live. Uh, it's basic instruction for the Christian life, um, and none of us can hear it enough times. Uh, we, we learn through repetition, we learn through going through these things um, and going over and over again, and God wants his people instructed, wants his people instructed on those important things, those vitals of the faith, uh, that we keep those things in front of us and, and understand them correctly. Uh, God wants his people instructed, not just so that we have a head knowledge, so we just know these things and can pass, you know, a catechism test if someone were to give it to you. There's no test at the end of the service. You can relax a little bit. Um, but what, why, do, why does God want his people instructed this way? Not just so that we learn these things, but so that learning them, we might be comforted. Now, that's one of the glories of the Heidelberg Catechism as it begins its instruction is to come to God's people and say, what God wants is for us to be com comforted. He wants us to be comforted by what we believe concerning who we are in Jesus Christ. He wants, to be, wants us to be comforted as we consider the life that we're called to live, that it's not the life we live that makes us right with God, uh, but the Lord Jesus Christ who makes us right with God. All of these things are not just important for our knowledge, uh, they're important for our comfort. And that's one of the wonderful things about what, where the Heidelberg Catechism starts, to remind God's people that God desires for us to be comforted um, and wants God's people to be comforted. Um, and I wanted to think particularly about the comfort of a contender this evening from Isaiah 49. 
Because one of the things that question one so powerfully reminds us of in the Heidelberg Catechism is that we have been set free from the tyranny of the devil. Um, and that's something I wanted to think about a little bit this evening, that, that vital truth that we have been set free from the tyranny of the devil and brought into the family of God by the working of our Savior. Um, one of the things that the catechism reminds us of and what God's word reminds us of over and over again is that to really understand the comfort of what Christ has done, we need to understand where we've come from, uh, where we've come from and where the Lord has brought us. And so I thought we could use what Isaiah says in Isaiah 49 about the Lord who sets the captives free from the captivity of the tyrant uh, to think about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for the souls of all who believe in him. Brings us that comfort that comes from knowing that we don't belong anymore to the devil, but that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a comfort that will sustain us in life and death to know that we belong to him, body and soul. So we want to think about the comfort that comes from belonging to Christ. And so using Isaiah 49 and thinking about these things, we want to think about first the problem of our captor. Uh, the problem of our captor uh, is the first thing we have to address. Then we can think about the promise of our contender uh, that Isaiah brings up. And finally, the provisions of our comforter, uh, what the Lord does for those he sets free. So that's how I want to think about our text and the catechism this evening. The problem of our captor, the promise of our contender, and the provisions of our comforter. Uh, one reform minister in the 1800s said, None but those who are conscious of being lost can discover that Jesus is the Savior they need. Without a consciousness of being lost, uh, we cannot come to a knowledge of the Savior we need. It's one of the challenges we face in evangelism in, in the United States is that it's hard to convince people they have something they need. Uh, we're such a blessed people, we have so much, that it's hard to come to someone and, and to really convince them that they need something. Um, once you realize you're lost, you know you need to be found. Once you realize you're sick, you understand that you need to be healed. But if you don't see those things as being true, uh, you miss a vital connection with God's word. Uh, you don't see yourself as needing a savior. And one of the things that this question confronts us with and this verse confronts us with is the fact that we do need to be saved. Um, we under, have to understand how great our sin and misery actually are. Uh, question two says that's one of the first things you need to know to live and die in the joy of the comfort of belonging to Christ is to know how great your sin and misery are or just how bad the situation is. Uh, to truly understand the good news, we have to understand the bad news. And, and what, what is the bad news? We're in captivity under the tyranny of the devil. That is our natural condition apart from salvation in Christ, to be under the tyranny of the devil. There are many places in Scripture that talk in ways about the tyranny of the devil. Um, but it's important for us to, to remember who the devil is, who the devil is, is that's described for us in Scripture um, as the one who hates God and hates his people, who is in anger and great wrath making war on the people of God, that one who has been a murderer from the beginning, a sinner from the beginning, a liar from the beginning. Uh, who likes to masquerade as an angel of light, but is really a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, the great dragon who is always after 
the people of God, who cannot successfully make war with God in heaven, and so he makes war with his image bearers. He can't, he can't strike at the real thing, and so he goes after those who are made in the image of the God he hates. Um, that's who the devil is, and he is a powerful adversary. Uh, he can be resisted. He has been overcome by Christ, but we know him to be a serious adversary. And the truth is, left to ourselves, the way we're, we're dead in our sins and trespasses is we are under the captivity, under the tyranny of the devil. Uh, he, has been, he has taken us captive. And the sad reality is we became his captives because we sold ourselves into his service. Uh, we believed his lies. We thought it would be better to be friends with the devil than it would be to be friends with God. Um, and we decided we'd follow his advice rather than God's word. Um, and he deceived us and we fell. And we lost all that it meant to belong to God. And we found ourselves belonging to the devil. We sold ourselves into his slavery. And once we've sold ourselves into his slavery, there's nothing we can do to break ourselves out of it. He's too strong for us. One of the main problems is we have a foe who's too mighty. Now that's the problem that Isaiah surveys in Isaiah 49 when he thinks about the captivity of God's people. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Um, who will contend with the mighty person who holds the captive? Um, that's the problem. There, there is this mighty captor into whose service we've sold ourselves. And he's become our master, not just by his might, but now by his right. Um, the, the terrible badness of the bad news, if we can put it that way, is that not only did we sell ourselves into his service, but he lawfully possesses us. We, we belong to him truly um, under his power. I don't know if you remember that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Edmund has been rescued, who has been a traitor, and the witch comes and wants his, wants his body, wants to put him to death. And she says, his death is mine. I have the right to a kill. And someone who's strong says, well, why don't you come and take him then? We have the power to resist you. And she just she sneers at him and laughs and says, you think you can resist by power? I have the right. The law gives me the right. Um, that's the problem that we have with our captor. He doesn't just have the might. He has the right to hold us captive. That's, that's really what Isaiah is driving at in the second part of verse 24. It, it comes across as a strange kind of thing. And there are, you know, you see in the, in the footnote, if you have an ESV, um, of the footnote in the second part, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued. It's trying to reflect the parallelism that comes later, but there, there's a linguistic problem, and the text seems to say the righteous man. Um, and, and one commentator said, you know, that's why we want to smooth it out and just make it tyrant and tyrant, because it makes it reflect better the language. But what, what could it mean to have this, this idea of righteousness put in there um, in, in verse 24? And I like the commentator who said, He's not talking about a righteous captive. He's talking about a lawful captive. And he's presenting the twofold problem of our captivity. We have a captor who's too mighty for us and a captor who has the right to us. 
That's really what Isaiah is asking in the second part of verse 24. Or the captives, the lawful captives, be rescued. Who's going to represent, who's going to rescue those who lawfully belong to the person they're in captivity to? That's the problem. It's not just the might of the enemy, it's the right of the enemy. Who is going to rescue the lawful captive? That's the problem of captivity. Isaiah is speaking to captives who go into Babylon who will one day be set free. But we know from God's word that the captivity in Babylon represents also spiritual captivity. And that's what's being said to spiritual captives. Who has the power to rescue you from your captor? Who has the right to set you free? How will he deal with the fact that you are a lawful captive? And the way Isaiah asks the question is to sort of assume the answer. Who can set these people free? Well, the answer anticipated is no one. There's not a soul on earth who can. The captors are too mighty. And the lawful cause of the captor is too righteous. There's no one who can set the captives free. One commentator said the problem is there is another power besides physical strength. The power of law and right. Can a captor who has every right to his captives be deprived of them? Can captives who have been justly taken captive be set free? Well, this is the problem that's being outlined in the way Isaiah asks the question is to anticipate the answer that everyone would have to give no. We can't do it. And that's why it's so important that for the problem of our captor, uh, there's the promise of a contender. Because the question Isaiah asks in 24 assumes a negative answer that no one can. But a voice is heard speaking. A voice gives answer to this question that assumes a negative response. Can anyone do it? No, no one on earth can do it. But then a voice is heard, and whose voice is it? It's the Lord's voice. The voice of the covenant God of his people. And what does he say? Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. Um, Here is a voice that gives an answer that seems impossible. Here's a voice that rings out and says, I can do what it seems impossible to do. I can break the might of the captor and I can break the right of the captor. And what is the glorious promise that God gives? He says, I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Uh, To this this question that expects a negative answer, what does the Lord do? Uh, One person said the Lord's words are a positive, strong affirmation. No matter how powerful or tyrannical the captor may be, the Lord will deliver us from his hand. The devil is crafty and powerful, but he is no match for the might and the right of the living God. God will contend for his people. Uh, No one can doubt the might of God to contend with our captors. But God says, I will contend for you. I will plead your cause. 
I will plead the cause of my people. I will make a righteous case uh, for rescue. Uh, That's what the word contend here really means. It's the equivalent of plead your cause. And that's what God promises to do. I will contend with your adversary. I will plead with your cause for over his might and over his right. Um, God will come and do that for his people. And how does the Lord contend with the devil's might and the devil's right? By sending his son into the world. That's the glorious good news of the catechism. This is not, you know, this might not sound like earth-shattering, groundbreaking, you know, new ground that we're exploring to say that Jesus Christ comes to save us from our sins. But how fundamental is that for our comfort? To know that we have a God who contends with the enemies against whom we are powerless. Who comes with all the might that's needed to contend for us and to make it right for us to be set free. That's what Jesus Christ comes to do. And that's the glorious good news of what Jesus Christ came to do in the world. The promise of a contender is one who will come and destroy the works of the devil. Um, we We could ask... Why does Jesus come into the world? And we can answer that any number of ways from Scripture, but maybe thinking how we're thinking about the tyranny of the devil, maybe one of the most glorious reasons that's given to us is by the Apostle John in 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy his work, destroy his might, destroy his right. Set his people free. That's what the Son of God came to do. And how does Jesus do that? Uh, what, What is the problem? Particularly for the lawfulness of our captivity to say we did transgress the law of God. And those who transgress the law of God deserve to die. Right? That's what the devil constantly comes and accuses the sinner of. The truth of the law. That those who do such things deserve to die. That was the terrible curse pronounced over lawbreakers from the very beginning. The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That's the judgment that comes against sin. And that's how the devil holds people in slavery. He holds them in slavery. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says he has the power of death and he holds people into lifelong slavery with the fear of death. That's the tool he uses to work his tyranny. Because what does he do? He comes to us as an accuser accuser and says, you're a sinner. And you know what sinners deserve, don't you? You know what you have coming, don't you? It's death. Death is the pronouncement. When he comes and tyrannizes people and holds them in lifelong slavery with the fear of death, the fear of death is not the fear of dying. The fear of death is what comes after. Because it's appointed for a person once to die and then to face the judgment. And how does the devil hold people in slavery? The fear of that judgment. You're a sinner. And you will surely die in your sin. That's the the tyranny of the devil. And so if the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world, what is he going to do to break the power of the devil? 
Well, the first thing he's going to do is take away sin. Sin is what makes us afraid of the judgment. Sin is what gives the devil's accusations purchase. Because hopefully none of us deceives ourselves into saying we're not sinners. Um, If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, John says. We're all sinners. We know that's true. He uses that truth to accuse us. And so what does our Lord Jesus Christ come to do in breaking the power of the devil, destroying his work? Well, he's come to take away sin. Sin and judgment are connected, and so the Lord Jesus Christ comes first to take away the sins of his people. The Apostle John preached that glorious truth in 1 John 3 as well. Chapter 3, verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. Why? Because if there's no sin, there's no judgment. If there's no sin, there's nothing to fear in the judgment. Um, Sin is what makes judgment terrible. Take away sin and you destroy the power of death. You destroy the fear of death. Death becomes something different to the Christian. I like what the catechism says, you know, why later on it will say, why must I still die? If the Lord has died for my sins, why must I still die? Um, And it reminds us, your death is not a payment for sin. It just puts an end to sin and is an entering into eternal life. That's all death is for the Christian. You see, because sin has been taken away, then it loses its fear. It loses the fear of what comes after If sin has been taken away, and that's what the Son of God came to do, through death, to take away sin. To take away sin and to take away any fear of judgment by taking the judgment for our sins on himself. This is critical for us to understand for the comfort of our souls. To know that the Son of God came to take away our sins, to be judged in our place, so there would be for us no more sin, no more judgment. To take away all that fear through his own death, that he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He's taken away our sin, he's been judged for us in our place on the cross, and so what is left to be afraid in death. Our sins have been taken away. 1 John 1, 7 and 9, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You were ransomed, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Uh, What is being taught to us there? The Lord Jesus Christ meets not just the might of our captor, But as our contender, he comes and meets with the right. 
deals with the fact that we are lawful captives and satisfies the law's demands so that we can be set free. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Um, That he would be faithful is a glorious truth. That he's faithful and just is more glorious. Because it reminds us that the blood of his son has cleansed our sins, has met the just demands of the law. Peter says you were ransomed, you were bought back. You were bought out of that slavery, and so now you become the Lord Jesus's by right. By the might of what he's done, destroying the devil and his work by his cross, and by the glory of what he's done, contending for the right to hold his people and to purchase them out of slavery. So that he might take away sin, that he might take away judgment, that he might take away the means the devil's been using to subject us to lifelong slavery, the fear of death. Because he's taken away sin, he's taken away judgment, that takes away all the sting of death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, the sting of sin is death. The sting of death is sin. Got that wrong. The sting of death is sin take away the sin, you take away the sting. And then what's left? Paul just says, victory. Even death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. His death on the cross breaks the devil's might. And breaks the devil's right to all his slaves. He sets us free. He sets us free by voluntarily dying for us. That he might pay for us with his precious blood. And might take away our sin, take away our judgment and set us free. And we have been set free. The righteous demands of the law have been met by Jesus Christ. There's nothing left for us to fear in the judgment. That's the glory of what God has done. Paul celebrates that glory in Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He has the power to save, but he also clears the legal case that was against us by his blood on the cross. He sets us free. Um, That's glorious that God has not even violated his own righteous laws to set us free. Uh, He's fulfilled them all. One commentator said, when the Lord uses his power to save, neither his own righteous character nor any other right, even that of his foes, is violated. The devil has no accusation to make. There's no case to argue because of the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can be accused against God's people anymore. And not only are we set free 
by the, contend, by the contender who came to contend for us and to plead our cause and to save us by his cross. But he purchases us out of that slavery and brings us into a new kind of relationship, uh, into a new family. Uh, that's what we have to think about also, the provision of our comforter. What does he free us for? Uh, Not just so that we can go wander our own way again, um, but he freed us to bring us back to what we were originally made to do, to live with our God. To live with our God, to be part of the family of our God. Um, Think about what we confess in Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's why to be really comforted, we need to understand what it means to belong to Jesus now. Um, Not only how great my sin and misery were, but how I've been set free from my sin and misery. And what it means to be now taken away from belonging to the devil, who's the worst person you can belong to, and now to belong to Jesus, who's the best person to belong to. No one who loves you more than the Lord Jesus Christ who is willing to lay down his life for those who believe in him. Um, And so we have to think also about the provisions of our comforter. What does it mean to be bought into his family, to be bought out of slavery and to become his possession? It means that he has made us his own uh, for his father's glory. What does Isaiah say is the glory of the fact that we have one who will come and will contend for us, who will save us and our children? What is the glory of that? Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The Father is glorified by what Jesus has to do, and we are brought into the family of the Father. We've been bought out of slavery to the devil and brought into the family of a loving, caring father. There's no greater reversal than we can contemplate than to go from being under the devil's foot to being at the right hand of a father in heaven who loves us. To be brought into the holy of holies and to have access there by the blood of Christ. And to know that father who loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to save us and to have his care watching over us. Um, The devil hates us and wants us to die. That's his whole will for our lives. Um, But what does our father do for us when Christ brings us into fellowship, into the loving care of his father? He watches over us so much so that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. He's that caring about us, that he's watching over us to that extent. He's making sure, in fact, that everything has to work together for my salvation. He sends me all good things, and anything that comes to me that's bad in this world, he assures me that he will turn it to my good, that it will contribute to my salvation. Even when I can't see it, he can do it. That is a radical reversal to be brought into this kind of family from what we were. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who brings us 
into the family of a loving, caring father who will see to it that all things work together for our salvation. And all flesh will see what God does for his people. Not now. People are often very skeptical of our trust in God now. But there will be a day when all flesh will know. At the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ, when all is made clear, all flesh will know that God is the Lord our Savior and our Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. One of the provisions of our Comforter is He brings us into the family of a loving, caring Father and He pours out on us His assuring, sanctifying Spirit. That's the other glory of what Jesus does for us. Not only causes us to be adopted into the family of the Father, but pours out His Spirit on us. What does the Spirit do for us? Assures us of salvation. Right? The devil's always been a liar. And even when his true cause has been broken by the death of the Son of God, he still loves to come and be an annoyance. He's a liar. He doesn't care if he's telling you the truth or a lie. He'll still come to you and say, you're a sinner and sinners deserve to die. And what do we need in those moments, those dark nights of the soul, when when we can't shake that voice out of our head? We need to hear another voice speaking to us. The voice of a comforter. The voice repeating the words of Jesus Christ to us. And saying, yeah, he's a roaring lion. He is a liar. Um, But there's a truth to be heard. And it's to be heard from one who's greater than the devil. And what does he say? You're forgiven. When the devil comes and says, you're damned. The spirit comes and says, you're forgiven. He assures us of eternal life. By repeating to us the words of Christ. One of the most precious things we have is the word of God. Where we have the Holy Spirit recording for us the truths of what Jesus Christ promised. John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Spirit assures us us of those words when the devil is accusing us. When he's lying to us and telling us things that are not true. The Spirit repeats to us the words of Jesus Christ in John 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. When the devil says, you will surely die, the Spirit says, no, no, you've passed from death to life. You will not come into judgment. The Son of God died for you and sent me to you to tell you that you will live. We need that assuring word. We need that spirit testifying to our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Spirit assures us and the Spirit sanctifies us. He makes us more and more like Jesus. He makes us more and more 
like Christ. I love how the, how the first question of the catechism puts it. He not only assures me of eternal life, but makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I'm not a slave in chains anymore. I'm a willing servant, eager to do what the Lord is calling me to do. Because I love him, because he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Because he gave everything to set me free. The spirit comes and lives with us and causes us to become like Jesus. But it's not something that we're forced to do against our will. It's something we delight to do. Because he helps us to understand what Christ has done for us to make us like Christ more and more. That's why if we're really to understand the joy and to live and die in the joy of the comfort of belonging to Jesus, the third thing that we have to understand is not just how great my sin and misery are and how I am set free from sin and misery, but how I'm to thank God for such deliverance. What it means now to be a true servant who's been set free by the blood of the Son. God's desire is that we find rest for our souls. God's desire in teaching us these things is so that we might be comforted. Comforted to know that we have a Savior who has set us free. Comforted that we might no longer live under the power of death. Comforted that we might not live under the slavery of the fear of death. Comforted to know that if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved from our sins will be brought into the family of a loving, caring Father. will be given the Spirit who sanctifies and assures God's people, who speaks that word of assurance in the midst of our accusations. This is what God wants for His people, for them to be comforted, to know that you have a Savior, to know that you have a Redeemer, To know that he is the mighty one of Jacob for his people. Um, That he has come to destroy the works of the devil. To take away your sin. And by his death to set you free. That's the God we love. That's the God we serve. That's the God who saves us from the emptiness of the enemy. Um, the, The tragedy of those who oppose God. They come to such a bitter end. In the beginning of verse 26, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. They'll have nothing left and will consume themselves in their emptiness. That's the fate of those who oppose God. What a radically different world he's brought us into. What a thing it is to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. If you grew up in this, if you grew up in this church, if you grew up learning these these words, I hope they never become commonplace to you. There are some of us who could rattle these the first question of the catechism off, no problem. We always have grown up with it. We know it. I hope these things never become common. This is comfort for the soul to understand that you've been fully paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, that He has set you free. And if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Praise God for such a Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, to think that we used to be enslaved and subject to the tyranny of the devil uh, fills us with terror to think of our state, whether we understood it or not fully. 
to know that we belong to someone who hated us and wanted us dead, body, and soul. And to think that you, in your grace, saved sinners who didn't deserve this salvation, who were lawful captives, who had chosen friendship with the devil over friendship with you. But in your grace, you sent a Savior who would put enmity between us and the devil, who would force an enemy relationship where we had tried to make friends, who would come and set us free from his tyranny and who would destroy the works of the devil. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has set us free, who testifies that in his coming he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, that he has come and destroyed the works of the devil. He has set us free from his tyranny. Um, He has made a public display of his enemies and his triumph on the cross. And one day he will come to destroy even the last enemy, death. But until then, thank you that we don't live under the power of death or under the fear of death anymore. Thank you for the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And may we continue to live lives of grateful service to you on account of what you've done to show a measure of our gratitude for such a great salvation. And hear our prayers, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Amen. Let's take up our psalters and as a song of response, turn to number 277 and we'll stand together and sing all the verses of number 277 before the throne of God above.
Dearly loved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts now to the Lord and receive his blessing. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. People of God, go in peace.